I think that's an interesting uh, way to think about it. So for me, uh, I think the distinction between soft robotics and hard robotics is, or non-soft robotics is really hard. I think it's it's a real spectrum. Uh, so one use case I can think about is, uh, for example, if you're building a robot using completely soft materials, then you, uh, one of the things that robot cannot do is transmit forces really quickly. Because of like, uh, the the effective force transmission depends on the modulus of the material. If you're trying to generate like high speed uh, forces or torques through your body, then maybe using a soft material solution is not the best thing. My name is Kaushik Jaram. Um, I like to define myself as an interdisciplinary scientist whose work lies at the intersection of biology and robotics. Specifically, my group's research focuses on uncovering principles of robustness that make animals really effective at locomotion in natural environments. Uh, and we use these principles and translate them into the design of the next generation of highly capable bio-inspired robots that can potentially make a significant positive impact on our society and economy. So I'd like to go back to your PhD. I, was, I think it was Robert Fall. You were doing your PhD with Robert Fall, if I, if I remember, right? Yeah, so I think as a part of my graduate school work, I think my work broadly focused on trying to understand what makes biological systems really robust to a variety of like environmental and internal perturbations they might experience. So I joined Bob's lab with a degree, with an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering. So I was get, coming into a biology lab as a mechanical engineer, trying to look at animals, uh, mostly insects, uh, and trying to understand like what is it about their design that makes them so successful at doing all these like remarkable locomotion feats. And so specifically as a part of my PhD, I worked on a few different features of what I would call as features of robust systems. So one of the first projects I worked on was trying to understand the ability for fault tolerance or basically damage resistance. So we were really at that point, uh, some senior grad students were really interested in the role of the cockroach antenna in locomotion. So in terms of if they're doing high-speed locomotion, how do they use that antenna to transition from say running on the horizontal to climbing up a vertical wall. And as we were collecting these experiments, this was really like when I was getting trained, my mentor and Jean-Michel Mongeau is now a professor at Penn State. We were doing these experiments together and it turns out that in over 80% of the trials, what we found that was the cockroaches, despite having all these wonderful sensors at their disposal, they end up running into the wall face first, face first, colliding into the obstacle and then like wearing up it. And this happened in over 80% of the time. And initially we thought maybe there's a mistake, but then we varied a bunch of parameters and we found that it's actually, they might be choosing this. As, and when we analyzed the trials where they collided and the trials where they did collide, we observed that, or we measured that when they were undergoing collisions, they could run nearly 20% faster. And so if you can imagine, this could be, if you're a predator chasing a cockroach, this could be a difference between life and death so for the animal. So 
we think that this gives them a better chance. And so animals in particular, in that work, I try to explore under what conditions you might be able to get away with these kind of behaviors. Obviously, if you're a human, if you're running into a wall, you'll get damaged. But mm -hmm. if you're a small animal like cockroach, uh, then you can just, just because of the size and the velocities you have, you can dissipate most of the energy what you have just based on the passive mechanical properties. And this is not really a new observation, like there will be many examples in history. In fact, in the 1920s, Haldane had this famous paper where he was looking at dropping insect of animals down a mine shaft and seeing what happens. And he had remarked that if you're as small as a mouse, then you can get away even if you fall off a mine shaft. And so we did some very big, making some assumptions and reducing essentially animals to simple cubes and taking into consideration the material properties and the characteristics we know, we estimated that if you're roughly around like a kilogram or lower, we call it the Haldane limit, then you can potentially use these mechanically mediated strategies for doing something complex such as transition maneuver without needing any sensors. So that was one of the projects I worked on. I also worked on a paper trying to understand how cockroaches are able to get into really small spaces. So we know that cockroaches have exoskeletons and typically we imagine exoskeletons are tough, they protect your body, but if anybody who's played with them also knows that they can be really flexible and they can bend in different ways. And it's actually this incredible exoskeleton, which is composed of rigid structures, but when interconnected by flexible membranes, which gives it the cockroach to compress dorsoventrally over 60% of that body height. And they can squeeze through a gap as small as the height of two pennies in under a second. And that is a really fascinating behavior. And they do this at high speed. So they run at over five body lengths a second, which is roughly the speed Usain Bolt runs at, uh, for a 100 meter dash. And they can do this while experiencing forces nearly 800 to 90 times the body weight. And so that's another example of robustness where you're taking advantage of the adaptability of your mechanical structure, in this case, a soft, compliant, but tough exoskeleton to, again, perform this like novel behavior, which is a confined space locomotion, which many robots uh, today, most robots, in fact, are not capable of. And we use this idea to design a robot called Cram, a compliant robot related mechanisms, which could push itself by 50%. And still be able to move at reasonable speeds. And this project really is the genesis of some of our recent work where we are taking advantage of the same kind of idea, but instead of like compressing vertically, now we are compressing laterally. We are building robotic systems which can squeeze through cluttered environments by basically changing the body shape to adapt to your environment, like narrowing, tapering walls, for example. And the last project I worked on was thinking about. Fault tolerance, really, we, we know that if we go collect animals in the wild, they have something missing. So for example, there was a study in 2008 which showed that if you collected an average insect, they have about five legs or four and a half legs in the wild. But they you don't realize this when you just observe their motion because they're just incredibly capable, even with those small things. So we did this as a systematic series of experiments trying to ablate different structures of the feet and ultimately the legs to understand how robust the systems were. And we found out that they, even with a cockroach with just two or three legs, 
could run about 60% of its top speed when it was intact, which was incredible. And we observed very few differences in the kinematics. There's a lot of fascinating work ideas and work still need to be done with that problem. And so I think this is something which we'll continue to explore. Mm -hmm. So that's in a nutshell of what my PhD thesis was about. And so I just uh, was able to probe a little bit into understanding uh, as a mechanical system, uh, how robust uh, cockroach can be, or like by robust, I really mean how it can maintain its performance despite these kind of perturbations, whether they can be imposed by the external environment or they're imposed just by the fact that they might be missing something. Interesting. So before going to your lab, because also you extend the origami design, I think maybe you can go for, for what you do also now. But I'm curious about the point you mentioned here because it's very fascinating the point you mentioned about the morphological maybe intelligence or maybe what we call morphological computation here and how this also the sensing bar you said that reduces the sensing so i want to blame this three component here the morphological intelligence and how this affect the sensing and maybe translating this in robot design can you break it down i think it's very interesting maybe how you can generalize this concept in soft robot design to take advantage of morphology like for example, the cockroach here and the resistance to damage. And I think this is, this is, I think, uh, very interesting for people to understand how to, yeah, make an assumption about each one of these and how they affect each other. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think this kind of seeming dichotomy between two schools of thought that there is like morphological intelligence and there is computational intelligence and that kind of two ends of the spectrum, which is uh, often what we see, I think, for me, morphological intelligence is everything to do with the body. So if you're not using explicit like brain computation or if you don't have feedback loops where you're actively sensing and making decisions on like a very rapid time scale, then a lot of that goes into the end of like the morphological end of like the spectrum. And then computational intelligence is like where a lot of people as like a classic controller we think about that you have an actuator, you have a sensor, and you have some kind of controller which interprets this information and issues commands. For me, as somebody who's been looking at biological systems and robotic systems, I think this is really a spectrum. And there are certain cases where you can use one more than the other, but in reality, you basically rely on both of them, but maybe a little bit more on one versus another, depending on cases. So for example, specifically about morphological intelligence, I I mean, this is not a new concept. I think like, although it's become really popular over the last few decades, I think this, this idea of like the role of the body or the importance of like having a really well-tuned body has been there for a long time. I think, in fact, as early as in the 90s, Mark Raber, telling me still a professor at MIT, I think uh, he has a quote in one of his papers in 93, where they basically say, you something to the effect of you can build a really amazing controller, but that controller needs to act on the body. And that's what takes into consideration. It takes into consideration the physics of interaction between the body and the environment. And if you're not tuned, then no matter how good your controller is, you're always going to be limited by the physics of those interactions. And so that's what I think about as morphological intelligence. And in fact, Again, like my advisor, Bob Sol and his colleagues working with most notably Dan Kordicek, 
And so, so they developed this idea of like simple template-based models. For example, you can think of walking and running as a mass on the top of a pendulum or like basically a spring. And if you have the right uh, stiffness properties tuned, then you can be passively stable on set. You would also have, you're also very economic in terms of locomotion. So the cost of locomotion as well. So these are just like some examples to kind of like show that you really need a well-tuned uh, mechanics for your body. And that's, that's, I think, what I think about as broadly morphological intelligence. Work from, for example, Shai Revzin uh, and others have shown that in a cockroach, you can have a cannon on the back and like basically try to perturb it really fast. But because they have these well-tuned mechanics, they can dissipate these external perturbations really fast within like one to two body strides and they can recover. More recently, I think work from Chen Li's group has kind of extended that idea to kind of think about this notion of teradynamics or the importance of like body shape as you're navigating complex environments. So similar to how, if you look at fish, they all have a streamlined shape because it's beneficial to have a streamlined when you're going to water. A similar kind of concept can be extended to uh, legged animals which are moving through these complex terrains. And you want to have like the right kind of body shape, which basically gives you certain advantages. And as I mentioned, a cockroach colliding and making these horizontal vertical transitions that takes advantage of the mechanics. And in a robot, we also have to tune like the nose to get the right shape. In our current work, we are basically taking that idea forward by having a morphable shape. So right now it's really passive, but and it can conform to the environment constraints. But if you, in the future, where we want to go is we want to have some actuation in there. And so based on, if you're able to sense the environment, we want to be able to change the shape of the body at will to make assume a form which is most beneficial to the kind of locomotion. So if you're trying to be stable or if you're trying to be fast or if you're trying to be more maneuverable, then I think you can assume different body forms. And that's really, I think, coming from this, the morphology of the body and like you, by intelligently kind of like taking advantage of this, I think we can get some really good performance. And potentially I believe that uh, if we push it really far, we can begin to approach the kind of performances we see with biological animals today. And this is not to say we don't need computational intelligence. Obviously, wherever advantageous, we need to take care of that or we need to incorporate it. In my work, for example, currently we are working on insect scale systems, so some systems which are one to four centimeters. There's a lot of challenges trying to build robots this small already. So currently we don't have a lot of like sensors and like onboard computational power. And so I think that's really one of the places where morphological computation can be really handy. And as we've shown, uh, some of my work and other colleagues have recently shown that if you're small, you also get these other advantages in terms of like collision damage resistance and things like that. So you can really rely on your body uh, to do that. And I think by, as we keep making our robot bodies better, uh, I think adding sensing and uh, computing on top will only make these robots even better. So that's that's kind of like how I think about this yeah. type of morphological intelligence. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I'll ask you about the this translation when you look for biology from biology perspective to transfer it to design. 
maybe one of the first consideration, like when you think about the mechanism, and especially in a small scale, there's many choices. Should I use a material that could be stimulus to certain like pressure, temperature? Should I do this design? There's many choices here that, to transfer what you saw in biology in a small scale to to the robot. I think this is interesting because it's a yeah, it's a challenging how we decide what I should choose in the space of the design, how I can translate this concept in biology to the small scale in this robot, for example. Yeah. I think that's a great question. And so for, for, for us, I, I really start like maybe even taking a step back. So I always ask the question, if there is something interesting in biology, that's great. And if I ask the question, should we translate it into a robotic system or not? But that's the first question to begin with. And the question there, the, the way I think about it is, it really depends on what we're trying to do with the robotic system. So for example, if you want to build robots as models or platforms for testing biological hypotheses, then absolutely yes. Then we want to build a robot with the highest fidelity, similar to the organism, and replicate it and uh, try to do a lot of experiments because perhaps we cannot run experiments at the same level with the biological organism. And so, so that's the first question. The second question, if we decide that we do want to uh, translate it, or if you're trying to build a robot for solving a particular real-world problem, then my group's approach has been to uh, basically look at the biological solution and try to understand it and distill it to the principle underlying the mechanism. So an animal is doing this behavior using this particular mechanism. What is the principle underlying that uh, mechanism, which is giving it that superior performance or uh, that excellent behavior? And only when this principle seems to confer an, a significant advantage over existing engineering solutions, we only then we try to translate it into a biological, in, into an engineering construct by combining it with the best uh, engineering practices we know. So, for example, if you think about information transmission of signals on the biological side, we know like nerves can conduct only information like in meters per second, but the engineering analogs, basically electrical wires can carry information at the speed of light. So even though there might be an interesting mechanism there, perhaps we don't want to translate that uh, unless uh, uh, we want to understand something about how the principle of nerve conduction works. But if you're trying to build a robot which can like measure things faster and take decisions faster, then maybe that's not the best thing because we already have engineering solutions which are really good. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think that's how we think uh, um, for a lot of ways, but also uh, in terms of thinking about this biological translation, we really look for bio-inspiration. So uh, we try to remain cautious about what nature does because biological systems often have a baggage, potentially because of evolution. They might be constrained in the kind of materials they use. They've been constrained by the physiological processes, like they need to feed, they need to grow, they need to mate. Most of our robots today don't need to do any of those things. So again, there is things uh, we can do to basically eliminate those things and make sure that we're not constrained by the same way. So I think that's how we think about like biological inspiration highest level. Do, do you have an example like in nature did you like find it's very interesting but it's hard to translate in design? I'm just curious. 
Yeah, no. So for our small scale systems, I'll give you an example. Uh, so as I mentioned, building like just the body and like the actuation systems at the scale is really hard. So if you look at biological system, they have like muscles, really small muscles, and they have like thousands of like them distributed all to the body. And on the engineering side, we are struggling to like for our robots, we have eight actuators. That's about the controlled or active degrees of freedom what we can have because it's it's a really hard thing for my graduate students to kind of sit under a microscope and spend a lot of hours doing that. Uh, another really fascinating problem, I think we have only started thinking about it in my lab right now, is if you look at biological systems, let's say if you look at the skin of, a, of an insect, um, you have so many sensors distributed all over the body. And it's just amazing. Even the simplest of organism, what we can think about, has so many sensors. And they're really in the order of like hundreds, of tens of thousands, or even like 100,000 sensors distributed all over the body. And on the robotic side, like even the best robots, I want to say, like maybe has off the order of like tens of sensors, maybe 10, 20, 30. And so this is like, we're talking about big robots, not even small robots. Small robots don't really have anything. Maybe they have an IMU on board. But so I think that's really hard and trying to like understand perception or the ability to kind of like know where all parts of your body are and use it to manipulate how you move. I think that's something which biological systems do really, really well. And especially for these small scale systems, we have no idea how to do that. Or And so my lab is really just scratching the surface right now. We're trying to like build joint sensors, essentially capacitors, which we miniaturize it and make it amenable to our laminate fabrication process. And so we, have, we can build maybe around like 10 or 15 of the sensors all over the body right now. And we're hoping to expand it to like about 100 but that's that's going to take some time for us to do. So I think that's an example that it's, if you look at biological systems, I would love to be able to kind of take that idea and build it into a robotic system. I think if we had the same amount of sensors, if we're able to use that information, we could do a lot better. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, I think it's a really hard uh, technological challenge for us to solve. Yeah, and what about the material here? Because you mentioned about sensor here. Uh, the material-wise, just this is a challenge sometimes to find the material with a structure that. How do you see the interplay between both when we need to choose the material for small scale here? Yes, the material is a challenge. Uh, so for us, we've been lucky in terms of like some of the choices of materials which the the scientists before us have uh, basically used and developed. For example. I did my postdoc with Rob Woods lab at Harvard, and their group has been working on specifically how do you combine different kinds of materials and what kind of materials are useful in different situations. And so um, there's a wealth of knowledge coming from there. So for, for the most part, we're using, we're building laminate structures. And for example, a typical body laminate consists of two layers of carbon fiber with a piece of like polyamide or some kind of plastic which is sandwiched between those. For joints, we again use different polymers, uh, but that's that's really like a start. And so that's that's one approach. And currently at CU Boulder, I'm collaborating with a few material scientists who are really experts that 
developing novel smart materials, for example, new kind of actuation materials. This would be Professor Tim White's group or like Ryan Hayward's group who are looking at different kinds of hydrogels, for example, giving some really sensitive properties for like adhering to surfaces or you can like change the light or like how those interact. So, so I think like my group is not on the material side of things. We try to like work with uh, other collaborators who are developing those fundamental materials and we combine them in interesting ways to get the material properties what we want. Lucky for us, we use laser-based microfabrication and specifically we're using femtosecond laser-based system. And this technology basically allows us to process virtually any material, uh, tinfoil materials, with very, very small losses to any of the material properties. For example, compared to other laser fabrication systems, like our boundary layers where materials get damaged are really in like the nanometer kind of ranges. So we can combine a wide variety of materials to get the kind of features we need. And so typically in soft material or in soft robotics, you see a lot of researchers kind of rely either of, of two principles to get soft-like behavior. They usually start off with soft materials or like stretchy materials and then build their robotic systems using that, or they rely on the geometry. So, so this would be rigid links interconnected by a lot of like flexible structures to get these overall flexible like properties. For the most part in my lab, we use a lacquer approach uh, because we think it confers certain advantages, especially with respect to force transmission. And because we want to build agile, fast robotic systems uh, in the natural world. So I think we want to take care of, like a lot of our experience has been in the category of using the geometry to get kind of material or the overall system characteristics, which are more like soft-like for performing mm. behaviors. So let me ask you about the use case in the lab. Where the direction you want to go? Like maybe you can highlight some use cases you really, yeah, focusing on or direction for the lab. Also, other question you would love to answer maybe with your team. So we we get asked the question: small scale robots. Why are you building them? And what's really interesting about them? And so I think small scale robots. Uh, the primary purpose we are building them is because they provide unique and unprecedented access to environments which larger robots cannot. Uh, so just because of the sheer size, they're able to get into spaces. And we currently, by building them uh, with shape morphing or shape shifting capabilities, we're trying to expand that even further. So some of the use cases or potential use cases for these robots are, I think, broadly fall into these four categories uh, for, for me. So the first one is in, this, in the field of disaster response. So the, the robot, the cockroach-inspired cram robot, what we built, after that, we had a lot of interaction with folks from, for example, the FEMA, who were really interested in potentially using them to assist uh, with uh, first responders in terms of locating if there, are, if there are people trapped. So I think because these robots are small and they can squeeze into tight spaces, you can have a camera on them, you can have a bunch of sensors, like a temperature sensor, they can carry a pill or a little bag of water, uh, and they can basically figure out like where people are trapped and turns out that's, that's the hardest part to do, especially if you have a collapsed structure. You can't really have humans and dots go in because 
they might disturb the environment, they can bring the old structure down. So like figuring out the path is the hardest part. And if robots can help with that, I think that would be a fantastic place. Our robots are not as robust yet, which we can be field deployed, but that's something what we're working on. Another use case uh, I think of is, in this, and this might be most closest to industry relevance, this would be uh, high value asset inspection. For example, this would be the, in terms of like inspection and maintenance of structures like buildings, bridges, dams, hard to reach places. In fact, uh, a couple of years of my postdoctoral work at Harvard was funded on a project in collaboration with Rolls-Royce, where we were basically trying to build miniature systems to inspect the inside of jet engines every time it turns out that it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So when the flight lands, you need currently you have a human with a boroscope uh, with a camera and going and taking images and trying to analyze if there is something damaged after a certain number of flights. But if we could have a fleet of small robots just scurry around take pictures, upload them online, and then you can both not only reduce the time it takes, but also potential efficiency and the cost of these things. And so I think that's probably the closest. There are other examples I know, like GE, for example, is also interested in using this for similar applications. We have been contacted by some power line companies who want to use them for inspecting underground conduits or like have some of our tiny robots basically uh, crawl um, along these uh, overhead transmission lines to see if there is any sign of damage. And so I think that would be the nearest application, I think, to reality in the next like, couple of years. Another application, which is personally important for me, would be in the areas of uh, environmental monitoring. Because these robots are cheap, easy to mass produce, I think we can deploy a lot of them as mobile IoT sensors effectively. So they not only give you high temporal data, but because you can drive them around, you can also get high fidelity spatial data. And we are actually working with a group here to integrate some soil sensors into a robot. So we can potentially test them in agricultural fields and get real-time information. And lastly, uh, I think I would love to see this like by the time I finish my career, maybe if you're able to shrink our robots even smaller. Right now, the smallest robot we have in our lab is about 15 millimeters in length. But if we can make them maybe half or a quarter of its size, then with the dexterity they have, they can potentially crawl inside the human body, assist with robotic surgeries, clear heart clots, for example. And so that's, that's a whole fascinating problem. There are, it's a long way from us, just not just a miniaturizing, just using different materials, having biocompatibility, degradability, all of those things. But that's that's one of the holy grails for uh, our field, I think, to have like highly capable small-scale systems. And that's something which uh, I would be really excited to work towards. But that's a really long, long-term yeah. vision. Interesting point, the last one also. First of all, thank you for all these cases. I think it's all interesting. And I think um, it's really interesting that you show them but what what do you think for the last use case you mentioned to make take us to low long? Do you think it's much science or understanding of hardware and that scale? Because I think that's maybe the way to go in the future. We have such small robot bodies to detect early diseases, for example. So, yeah, what do you think uh, the the thing that we need is the material science or or hardware that side? What it is, yeah. 
So, yeah, no, I think that's a fascinating question. To be honest, I would probably say we need work in all of those fields. So where my group is coming in it is, as I mentioned, we are thinking more at the system level. We are thinking about like integrating different features. So we want to integrate uh, materials to build interesting bodies, to like having sensors on board, to having uh, controllers, which can do some kind of like autonomy related tasks, like automatically walking through the structure and discovering things. And so I think that's where our work is uh, approaching and uh, we are uh, going to lean on our collaborators on the material science side or, or on the, for example, the computational side to do this. There is already really fascinating work with much smaller robots. So these are simple robots which can be externally directed using MRI fields, different parts of the body for drug delivery and things like that. And so I think combining the insights. So in terms of like some of the materials they're using, that's more closer to potentially already being biocompatible or being able to use in the, uh, with human systems. And so at some point we would like to work with folks in the, in that area and kind of follow that insight and try to combine it with some of the locomotion capabilities, what we think. So the human body is a really challenging place to move in. There's like, it's, it's dynamic, things are changing. There's a lot of fluid in there. And so I think what our group is trying to focus is on improving the locomotion capabilities and the performance capabilities in these kind of challenging environments. And hopefully we can work with others to get there. So since it goes that few question, maybe the first one, when do you think soft robotics is not a solution? Like we try to force using soft robotics for use cases, if not necessarily. So do, do you think there's this is a trend to use something? Does not make sense why we should use soft robotics here? Yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, way to think about it. So f for me, uh, I think the distinction between soft robotics and hard robotics is or non-soft robotics is really hard. I think it's, it's a real spectrum. So one use case I can think about is, for example, if you're building a robot using completely soft materials, then you, one of the things that robot cannot do is transmit forces really quickly. Because of like the, the effective force transmission depends on the modulus of a material, if you're trying to generate like high-speed forces or torques through your body, then maybe using a soft material solution is not the best thing. And But on the other hand, combining that or coupling it in some way with more rigid materials or tunable stiffness materials, I think that might be useful. So I think soft robotics as a community, there are, there's a lot of development going on. I think in the last few years, much of the research has been focused on developing soft bodies. And more recently, people are trying to think about different ways to actuate them, different ways of including like fluid logic, for example, to build the equivalent of circuits. So that's that's another example that I can think about. Right now, On if we use rigid components, so if we use computers or ICs, we, we really can build computational systems which are really very good and they're small size, they consume low power. While there's been progress made on the soft robotics side in terms of fluidic logic, we're not there yet. We are basically at the stage of making a transistor or a few kind of systems. So complex logic cannot be yet implemented in soft robotic systems, although some by being soft, you can 
take advantage of or ignore some of those things, there might be instances where you really need to use that. And so that's something which we cannot do at the moment. So I would say that's an example where soft robotics is currently not a solution, but in the next few years, as technology gets better, we can potentially use them for those things. Mm -hmm. Maybe question also about the criticism. I don't know if you have any kind of criticism uh, maybe toward us things about soft robotics, so something need to be changed or improved. Yeah, for example, we have the question, do we need to have an artificial muscle that resembles the biological one? And in the podcast, some answers say yes, and also say no. So it's, it's not a, a defined, like, should we have it or not? Um, so yeah, I'm curious, do, do you think there's a criticism or anything? Uh... Yeah, I, I think like that example, what you brought up, like, do we want to have uh, an actuator which is identical to a biological muscle? I think that's that's an interesting one. So again, as I mentioned, so if you're trying to emulate a biological muscle, then I think that's that's a great kind of like a solution to have biological muscles really have interesting force velocity force like displacement kind of relationships but also if you just compare that with for example a dc motor in terms of like maybe efficiency biological muscles are not really efficient like they're maybe three to twenty percent efficient or something depending on like the kinds of muscles so but if we are looking at long-term operation and like energy use then maybe that's that's not the best thing uh we already have like engineering solutions so i wouldn't say it's necessarily criticism uh about a particular solution or uh, a, a particular soft robotic solution i think each solution has a place like as long as we define a problem and a purpose why we're building it uh, i think we can basically pick the best solution for that. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a criticism for the field as a general, but maybe for specific examples uh, as to like how we're doing it. Um, okay. So it's a question, maybe what are the thing you wish to solve with your group in your lifetime? Just something you wish to solve just in your career. You already mentioned the, the thing in that use case, but if you, yeah, you won't see that. Yeah. Yeah, no. So, so that on the application side, I mentioned like if we can have robots, like for example, if if we can have a robot like where which can go inside the body, you can like swallow a pill, and it can go to your brain and clear like a brain clot without you having to drill a hole through your head and damage your skull. I think that can be a wonderful example of something robot systems can do. So, I think that's on the application use case side. But for me, uh, I think I'm fascinated by just looking at insects and how remarkable they are in terms of their movement in the real world. And I think that is like, so if we can get close to understanding why or what are the key principles. And so I was talking about this notion of robustness. And as I mentioned, like I really don't know how to define robustness really well. So for, I'm calling it in the most general sense the ability to maintain performance because despite disturbances or perturbations, uh, I think I would really want to kind of like have a principled way of like thinking about this or like have a framework for uh, how do we think about this at like a component level, at the system level uh, and try to like start 
thinking like having a model of like a framework as to like okay if you want to build a robust robot here's like uh, a principle or a theory as to how you do that and so i think so that will be like my dream we know that there are features of uh biological systems like being adaptable or being able to learn or being able to be fault tolerant but finding this like overall framework which combines all of those features and to have a principled way of translating that into design i think that would be really really interesting for me in terms of my long-term career goals i think and that would truly i believe that would get us closer to understanding how biological systems are working or why they're working so well because if you look at the individual component level and in fact uh, we have a paper and review with some colleagues at the component level whether, whether it be the actuator whether it be the frame whether it be the sensor or the controller i think on the engineering side we've we've gotten pretty close town profound if you were to say or in fact in a lot of cases it's better than biological solutions. However, we don't necessarily put them together in the best way possible. And I think this is where biological systems are so good at integration across a variety of scale, across subsystems, across functionalities. And so to truly build something which is multifunctional, similar to an animal, that would be kind of like the, the mm. vision or the holy grail for me. So do you have any final words like safe with the listening? Oh, I think... I, I just want to uh, thank everyone for listening to what I have to say. And I think my final words in terms of bio-inspiration are, I think, as we start building more and more capable robots, which need to work in human-like environments or in natural environments similar to what animals occupied, I think studying nature can be a really effective tool and nature can be a useful teacher for building systems. Yeah, that's that's all I have.